I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 5, Episode 1 for Part 1 of this two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Raoul Moat had been on the run from the police. Using a double-barreled shotgun, Moat fired the weapon at his ex-girlfriend Samantha Stobart. She suffered life-threatening injuries. In the same attack, Moat murdered her new partner Chris Brown. Moat was obsessed and could not face the fact that his six-year relationship with Samantha had ended. Under the mistaken belief that Chris Brown was an officer of the law, Moat now wanted revenge against the police. Not even 24 hours later with the same weapon, he shot PC David Rathband as he sat stationary in his patrol car. Police tracked Moat down to Rothbury in Northumberland, a place Moat used to visit when he was a child. He had evaded capture for a week, before he was finally spotted. 
On the evening of July 9th, 2010, Raoul Mote emerged from his hiding place as he made a break for cover. Although witness accounts are somewhat muddled, dressed in a baseball cap and hooded top, Moat was seen near the bank of the River Coquit close to a storm drain. When the police arrived, Moat was trapped. There was the river behind him and an ever-increasing armed police presence in front. Two police cars came down and four armed police officers jumped out the car and Moat turned round and he had the gun in his hand and they asked him to drop his weapon and he refused. The standoff began around 7pm. Moat was surrounded by scores of armed officers dressed in black flak jackets and bulletproof helmets, all with their guns pointed directly at him. The cordon was set up and residents were urged to stay indoors. Ladies and gentlemen, for your own safety, I need you to move back in a line. Moat appeared unkempt and it was obvious that he had not slept. He lay on the ground with a shotgun pointed to his chin. In a slightly surreal turn of events, the former international football player Paul Gascoigne arrived at the police cordon in Rothbury to offer his assistance. The tense standoff had been underway for several hours and Gascoigne claimed to know the gunman. Sounding intoxicated, he spoke with a regional radio station before his arrival. The now-retired sportsman brought along a fishing rod. I've got my fishing rod and I'm willing to sit down and just shout, Mori, it's Gaza! Just all I want to show is, Mori, it's Gaza, where you? And I guarantee he will show his name out I'm here, and me and him could sit and chat, have a little bit of fishing, and, and all I'm telling him is, yeah, Moody, listen. And you, and you think you could sort it out? Paul Gascoigne had been drinking most of the day following a funeral. He seemed to think that all Raoul Moat needed was a, quote, can of lager, some chicken, a mobile phone, and something to keep him warm. The police politely asked Gascoigne to leave. In the intervening years... Paul Gascoigne would be interviewed by a journalist with the Sun newspaper. Gascoigne admitted that he had been drinking and could not recall the event. The former football player said, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. A fucking fishing rod and a chicken. What was that about? Fishing helped me when I've been in a bad place and I must have thought it'd be the same for him. The tense standoff lasted over six hours. Several police negotiators who were surrounded by marksmen peering through the telescopic sight of their high-powered rifles pleaded with Raoul Moat for a peaceful resolution. Moat had moved from laying on his chest to sitting up, with the gun pointing to his head. In an effort to talk him down, Northumbria police transported one of Moat's oldest friends to the scene. Tony Laidler, who also happened to work as a doorman, had known Moat since he was a child. Laidler pleaded with Moat to give himself up. Listen to me, Ralph. Ignore them. Go 
As the late night made way for the early hours of the morning, three negotiators kneeling behind bulletproof shields tried to stem the rising tension. Moat had been shouting, Shoot me. Fucking shoot me. But he was now starving. He told officers he had been eating dead mice. Moat was given a chicken sandwich and a bottle of water as the negotiators tried to build a rapport. They referred to Moat as Rao, telling him that he would not come to any harm despite his emotional outbursts. This is your opportunity to tell the world exactly what happened, one negotiator said. To do that, you need to put the gun down and come forward to me. Nobody is going to hurt you. This is not the end, Rao. It's the beginning. The entire riverside was swamped with police. Two NHS incident response unit ambulances were clearly visible as floodlights illuminated the suspect, who was now sat with his legs crossed. One of the police negotiators raised the topic of Moat's intentions for Samantha to receive a compensation payout after Moat shot her, and he was reminded about his children. The negotiator said, Now you have provided for Sam, who in turn will provide for your kids. You need to provide for your kids as well as being there. Cash doesn't compensate for their father's love. Tomorrow you can be that normal guy. We can get you the help you need to be that normal guy. As the events reached their climax, one witness who wished to remain nameless could overhear some of the dialogue between Moat and the police negotiators. A local who owned a guest house near the scene told a reporter for the BBC that they heard Moat say, Nobody cares about me, and I haven't got a dad. Rain clouds loomed overhead, and the bite of the cold night air was setting in. Officers some distance away watched on through their night vision binoculars. Sometime shortly after 1am on July 10th, the standoff would finally come to an end. Calls of, put that gun down, were yelled at the fugitive through the pouring rain. The police felt like they had no choice, so deployed what at the time they considered to be their only option. A shot echoed through the night. A stampede of officers ran towards Moat, but he made no effort to retaliate. His body appeared lifeless. He barely moved. Moat was rushed to Newcastle Hospital, the same place where one of his victims, PC David Rathband, was recovering. Moat was pronounced dead on arrival. A post-mortem was completed, which identified that Moat died from a single gunshot wound, consistent with the weapon he was seen holding.
voicing his frustrations at the fact Raoul Mote took his own life. Mote's uncle Charles Alexander, a former paratrooper in his early 70s, said, I just can't believe it has come to this. I was praying he would hand himself in. He had no chance. There is nothing Rao could do. It was like the guillotine in the French Revolution. People standing around gawping at his death. What he has done is terrible, but he didn't deserve death. I just wish that police had let me go to him. When he was speaking with the negotiator, he was saying how he didn't have a father and had nobody left. In an interview with reporter Karina Ford, Charles Alexander went on to explain that he was the closest thing that Moat had to a father and was surprised that the police chose to take a friend to the negotiations. I rang the police at 11pm to ask them to take me to him as I knew I could make a difference. They brought one of his friends in, but he was upset about family. It was family he needed. I have to go and identify his body in time. What is most upsetting is that now we'll never know why. What made him crack? As the standoff had unfolded, around 30 miles away, several people turned up at Raoul Moat's home on Fenham Hall Drive in Newcastle. Items such as an outdoor table and toys were stolen, then pieces of wood and brick from the garden wall were also taken. It had at first seemed like the home was being looted, before it was becoming abundantly clear that passers-by just wanted a souvenir or memento from the individual who was described at the time as the most wanted man in Britain. The police were quick to arrive at the property to disperse the crowd, but this did not deter Moat's friends leaving flowers and lit candles on the street outside, a spot that was slowly turning into a shrine. Rest in peace, God have mercy on you, and gone but never forgotten was some of the condolences written on the message cards attached to dozens of bouquets that had been left. These were not the only tributes. On Facebook, the social media platform where Moat had often shared his thoughts, a good deal of closed groups were being set up honouring the man who had shot and killed Chris Brown, almost ended the life of the mother to one of his children, and severely injured and blinded police officer David Rathband. One such group was called Come On Ral Moat, You Can Do It which amassed around 6,000 comments within only 24 hours of his death. One user wrote, Society needs more people like Raoul Moat, and another, R.I.P. In some instances, members of the group just quoted comments left by Moat before he died, like, Ha ha, you can come, but you can't catch me. Sue Sim, the temporary chief constable for Northumbria Police, offered a statement recognising the tragedy of the events and how grateful she was for the support received from the residents of Rothbury. Quote, 
While the incident has been brought to a close, we must be mindful of the impact it has had on many lives. Our thoughts are with the family and friends of those affected. I'd like to thank the public, particularly the community of Rothbury, for their continued help throughout the inquiry. This has been a difficult time for them, and their support has been invaluable. As more details from the incident were released, it appeared as though Moat had been hiding in a system of storm drains that wound beneath the town of Rothbury, with an entrance to the tunnels around half a mile from where the abandoned Black Lexus was discovered. The drainage system runs around 300 yards from Gregory Court, close to Rothbury First School, to an outlet around the riverside, near the River Cocot. Moat could well have been only a few metres away from officers right under their feet, popping up through a manhole in the street to steal food from empty homes and gardens. Now the clouds of panic were slowly dissipating. Questions were being asked as to how Moat managed to avoid capture for so long, given the sheer volume of police resources, reportedly in the region of 500 officers, with more than one in five of those individuals armed. A police helicopter and RAF tornado jet had also been deployed with heat-seeking technology, so how was it possible that motorway seemed one step ahead and was not tracked down sooner? It would seem that as Moat was hiding in the drainage system, this likely explains why he was not spotted by the heat-seeking equipment. As one of the biggest manhunts in a decade had come to an end, Northumbria's temporary chief constable Sue Sim was insistent that the force did everything they could to conclude the matter without bloodshed. It appears no gunshots were fired by police officers. Right up until that time, police officers were striving to persuade Mr Mote to give himself up peacefully. During this time, officers discharged Taser. However, this did not prevent his death. It was later revealed that Raoul Moat's threat to the public came when a dictaphone was discovered among the discarded camping equipment on secluded land at Wagtail Farm. A four-hour recording made by Moat listed his frustrations about the media coverage of his situation. He also claimed that he was unhappy with how the details of his life were being portrayed in the press. Moat threatened to start shooting at members of the public for each and every mistake made. Although he said that unlike the actions of Derek Bird only a month earlier, quote, I won't be shooting old ladies in their bobble hats. It had only been a month since taxi driver Bird undertook a murder spree in Cumbria, ending the lives of 12 people, injuring several others, before taking his own. Much was made of the interview in which Moat's mother said, I feel like he hasn't been my son since he was 19 years old. Josephine Healy went on to say that her son would be better off dead. 
It was the finding of the dictaphone that led police to request the media blackout. And they even asked some publications to remove online articles that had already been published. The concern being that with these articles still available, they might inflame Moat further. He disclosed his upset and annoyance at how the media had reported certain facts and believed the police may have been involved in this. At this time, he said the rules had changed and his threat had now moved to the wider public. I did speak confidentially to the media, seeking their support in an attempt to reduce the risk posed to the public. An investigation by the Independent Police Complaints Commission would further analyse the events and the outcome, which saw Raoul Moat dead from a self-inflicted gunshot. It was to examine the use of a 50,000-volt electric taser during the final moments before the fatal shooting and the intelligence gathered prior to Moat's release from prison. Raoul Moat's surviving family were asking questions as his post-mortem made no mention of the injuries from a taser gun. It was now being reported that two stun guns had been discharged, so where was the evidence they had been used? Perhaps it did not cause incapacitation as intended, but a muscle spasm and Moat pulled the trigger. Or was it merely ineffective? Moat's family wanted a second opinion. Angus, Raoul Moat's half-brother, had contacted the police and offered to help, but much like his uncle, he was prevented from seeing Moat before the fatal shot was fired at the riverbank in Rothbury. Angus Moat said, Raoul has been made out to be some kind of terminator, Rambo character, a psycho, and it could not be more untrue. That is not the brother I knew. Commenting on how he watched his half-brother's final hours through a television set, Angus Moat went on to say, It was like a public execution. I'm probably the only person who's ever witnessed their brother die live on national television. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, especially when you can't do anything about it, you haven't got the means to get up there to try and stop it. Um, completely powerless. If somebody hits you with a taser, every muscle in your body contracts. You have no choice in the matter. You're still twitching afterwards, as I understand. He's got his fingers on a gun. I fail to see how anybody can tell if somebody's going to pull a trigger and get the time to fire a taser when the trigger goes off. I think there's a possibility that those tasers might have caused them to pull the trigger involuntarily. I love him and I miss him. I never got the chance to say goodbye. As the spotlight slowly turned to the handling of the case, Chris Brown's family also wanted answers given Moat was clearly a violent individual with a volatile temper. Asked for comment from a reporter for the Guardian newspaper, Brown's sister Becky said, We are really angry and we want answers. Something went wrong and it cost Chris his life. They should have warned them. How did they allow that to happen when they knew Moat was a danger? We are devastated. I just want my brother back, and my mum just wants her son back. Sally Brown, Chris's mother, was also interviewed and addressed how Moat was being perceived. In an on-camera interview with ITV News, she said, 
I don't understand now, for some reason, why he is being praised and seen as some hero. It's wrong. I saw a clip yesterday of his brother saying it was a public execution. What did he do to my boy if he didn't publicly execute him? While the IPCC were conducting their investigation, the police were still piecing together who helped Moat during the week-long manhunt. A further three arrests were made in the Gateshead area, bringing the total number taken into police custody to ten. The Northumbria police were keen to note that there may well be accomplices discovered as the inquiry into the events unfolded. The news of Ralmote's death and his actions reached far and wide. Flowers and cards were not only being left outside his home, but also the site where he took his own life after the manhunt ended. The number of Facebook tribute groups were continuing to grow. There were calls for their removal, with the issue even addressed by then Prime Minister David Cameron. As far as I can see, it is absolutely clear that Raoul Moot was a callous murderer. Full stop, end of story, and I cannot understand any wave, however small, of public sympathy for this man. There should be sympathy for his victims, and for the havoc he wreaked in that community, there should be no sympathy for him. It was proposed that Facebook should be contacted to have the groups removed altogether, as the users were often leaving anti-police sentiments. Facebook, however, chose to leave the groups active, with the organisation deciding not to mute the opinions of their users. A company statement read, Facebook is a place where people can express their views and discuss things in an open way as they can and do in many other places. And as such, we sometimes find people discussing topics others may find distasteful. However, that is not a reason in itself to stop debate from happening. While some groups were taken down voluntarily, more began to appear. Chivorno Dowd, the organiser of the Facebook group titled R.I.P. Ralmote You Legend, with over 30,000 members, gave an interview to Talk Sport Radio. Referring to Moat and the manhunt by Northumbria Police, O'Dowd stated, I think he's a legend for keeping the police on their toes. I think it's funny how he hid. It's not just me who thinks this. It's about time someone gave the police something to do. That's what they get paid for, trying to catch criminals. So at least their wage was deserved. Quite the opposite sentiment was voiced from Marissa Reed, the mother of Moat's first two children. She had been in a relationship with him for nearly a decade before he met Samantha Stobart. Speaking with the Daily Mirror, Reed said that Moat's children would not miss him and described how she was beaten and raped by Moat, whom she called an utter monster. Samantha Stobart would tell a reporter for the News of the World that she too was assaulted almost daily by Raoul Moat, and on one occasion she was raped. I was crying my eyes out and shouting at him to stop, she said. I don't know how long it lasted, it seemed forever, 
It was an evil thing to do. He was savage about it. Kelly Stobart, Samantha's half-sister, condemned associating Ralmote with the word legend on Facebook or anywhere else. The way I see it, how would all these people think if it was a member of their family that he'd done it to? They wouldn't like it. He wouldn't be a legend then. They'd be calling them all the names under the sun. How can someone that does some, something like that to an innocent person be a legend? It's just disgusting. At the start of August, a funeral service was held for Raoul Mote. His family and friends attended, along with over 100 mourners who had neither met Mote nor knew his family. Several attendees, including Angus Mote, gave interviews to the press at West Road Crematorium, a short distance from Mote's home. We understand that there's elements of public interest, but from now on, we will view this as an investigation into procedures surrounding the events of recent weeks. We have instructed a solicitor to act for us. We are now moved to cooperate as much as is possible with the relevant authorities to allow the inquest to proceed. We have no further comment regarding the ongoing inquest into the circumstances of Raoul's death. Some of the mourners said that Raoul Moat did not deserve to die and had been unfairly treated. Teresa Bystrom was one such person. She did not personally know Moat, but had made a 300-mile round trip from her home. I just feel so sorry for the man. I absolutely love the man. I think he's great, and um, I always will. It's, I just feel, you know, sad that it's happened as it's happened. At the funeral, Teresa Bystrom also spoke to a reporter for The Sun newspaper. It was a nice day out for the kids, she said. You know what it's like in the school holidays, trying to keep the kids entertained and stop them from getting bored. They enjoyed it. It was better than Legoland or any other theme park. We took a packed lunch and the kids liked going to the funeral. Following the cremation, it was reported that the family scattered Moat's ashes in the river that runs through Rothbury, close to the scene where he died. If, if it is the case that the family have, 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 have uh, scattered the ashes here and, 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 and left the urn and, and the photograph on the riverside, a lot, a lot of the residents who I've spoken to um, have found it uh, quite disrespectful and, and distasteful um, towards the, the, the people, with, uh, towards uh, the residents of this, this community and, and, and uh, it just shows a lack of respect. We hope this is the end of it now. Um, I have a, a fear that it won't be, uh, but um, I really do hope that, that, that um, Mr Moat's family um, and obviously the, the, the media understand that Rothbury needs to move on and and events like this are not helpful uh, and conducive to us moving on. Chris Brown's funeral followed only days later. His girlfriend at the time of his death did not attend as Brown's family felt that Samantha shouldered some of the blame as she had told Raoul Moat that her boyfriend was a police officer. White flowers arranged next to the coffin spelt out the word daddy. During the service held in Chris Brown's hometown of Slough, hundreds of mourners paid their respects as the coffin slowly moved behind the curtain. It was covered in white flowers and blue ribbons, 
the colours of Chelsea, Brown's favourite football team. Messages written from his children were clearly visible, attached to the bouquets of flowers that had been left in the Garden of Remembrance as a tribute to the father of two. Chris Brown's son had written, To Daddy, I miss you so much and I'll love you forever. I promise I'll make you proud. Brown's daughter wrote, Daddy, now you're a star in the sky. Please, when I look, shine bright. I will know it's you and blow a kiss, tell you I love you and help you sleep tight. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The number of arrests made during the investigation into who helped Raoul Moat during his week on the run was increasing steadily. 
and Northumbria police had taken almost two dozen people into custody in connection with the incident. By this point, the investigation of Raoul Moat and the Northumberland shootings had cost in the region of £1.5 million. At the start of February 2011, seven months after Raoul Moat took his own life, a five-week trial was underway against Carl Nez and Kuramawan, who it was alleged helped Moat during his time on the run. They insisted they were held hostage and forced to help Moat, although neither made any discernible effort to notify the police of their situation or even raise the alarm. The details of the case were laid bare to Newcastle Crown Court by Prosecutor Robert Smith, QC. He said, The events in question arise out of the actions of a man named Raoul Moat, who in the course of less than 24 hours shot and killed one man and used the same weapon, a shortened double-barreled shotgun, to inflict severe and life-threatening injuries on two other people. The case which you are to try involves two men. The prosecution say were Moat's willing accomplices. Both men were also parties to a criminal conspiracy to commit offences which also involved Raoul Moat effectively to shoot police officers. While still behind bars, Raoul Moat learned that Samantha Stobart was seeing someone else and so sought the help of Carl Nez. They discussed how they could get hold of a shotgun. Nez searched Samantha Stobart's Facebook account and went through her rubbish bin. The pair went looking for her after Moat's release and called a local leisure centre to find out where her boyfriend who was working as a karate instructor might be. Nez drove Moat to Burtley where Chris Brown was murdered and Samantha Stobart was shot. Nez was exchanging messages with Moat as he hid beneath an open window, fully aware of what his friend intended to do. Kurama One was not present at this moment in time, something that was recognised by the prosecution. Samantha Stobart's mother, Leslie, offered evidence about the shooting in Burtley. She told the jury that on the night of July 2nd, 2010, she had spent the evening two doors down from where she lived. Her neighbours Jacqueline Wilkinson lived at the address with her husband, Carl. Leslie's granddaughter Chanel was asleep upstairs when the little girl's mother arrived with her boyfriend, Chris. The witness went on to explain what she did after the first shots were fired. Leslie Stobart said, I ran upstairs to get the children. I put them in the attic and I told them not to come out no matter what they did. I could see Chris lying on the grass. Then Raoul shot him again. I did not know Samantha had been shot at the time. I went down to see where everyone was and she was lying on the floor. After the shooting... Moat ran from the scene while Nez dumped a white Ford Transit van the pair had been travelling in. Samantha Stobart would also give evidence at the trial. 
a deep scar from the shotgun blast clearly visible on her left forearm. She spoke about the moment she was shot. I did not fall to the ground straight away. It took about 20 seconds, then I just collapsed, Samantha said. Blood was pumping from my arm and pumping from my chest. She was struck through the arm with the round then hitting her stomach, causing her life-threatening injuries. Less than 24 hours after Samantha Stobart and Chris Brown were attacked, Kurama One was transporting both Mote and Nez in his black Lexus car when they noticed a stationary patrol car with police officer David Rathband inside. Owen claimed that he did not know that Mote intended to kill anyone. He thought that the plan was just to shoot out the car tyres or scare the officer. PC Rathband, who would later give evidence at some points in tears, recounted the event that left him without the use of his eyes. He was shot twice by Mote, who fled back to the Lexus where Nez and Awan were waiting. Recalling what happened next, PC Rathband went on to testify. As I lay in the car, I realised I just had to lie there and literally play dead, because it was quite clear Moat wanted me dead. He shot me in the middle of my eyes and the second shot was to finish me off. So I tried to stop myself breathing because I was making lots of rasping noises, because of the amount of blood that was spraying out and that was going down my throat. It felt like a lifetime, but in reality, it was probably a few seconds. Carl Nez and Kurama One helped Moat set up camp in Rothbury, and before that were part of the robbery at the fish and chip shop. It was in Rothbury the two defendants were confronted by armed police, who deployed a stun grenade to incapacitate them before they were taken into custody. Moat managed to avoid being captured, as a one had called him to alert the fugitive that the police had discovered the Lexus getaway car. Moat remained on the run for several more days before he took his own life during a standoff with the police. The prosecutor was quick to point to what he described as a crude attempt to help the defendant's cause, when while on remand in Holmhouse Prison, a note was found in one of Carl Nez's shoes. Nez had written some secret correspondence which he intended to give to his girlfriend, providing her instructions on what to say, so it looked like Nez was a hostage. Kurama One also wrote a letter to his sister, in which he explained that he was not being held hostage. Quote, I am actually safer than safe. And when asked that his sister burn the letter after she read it. Throughout the trial, the two defendants claimed that they feared for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. After all, Moat had a gun. But prosecutor Robert Smith QC queried why they had run errands on Moat's behalf. The prosecutor argued that they had plenty of opportunities to raise the alarm. 
Nez had sent Moat text messages which the police discovered on one of the mobile phones that Moat had discarded. The defendants were captured on CCTV looking relaxed. They went shopping, purchased Moat several mobile phones, cigarettes, camping supplies, a barbecue and food, including a bottle of reggae reggae sauce. They even ate some burgers at Moat's makeshift campsite, which he had set up the same day he shot PC Rathband. During his summing up of the case, Mr Justice McComb told the jury that the focus at the trial was not Raoul Moat, but whether Rowan and Nez committed the crimes with him. You probably think it's abundantly clear that Raoul Moat murdered Chris Brown, attempted to murder PC Rathband and robbed a fish and chip shop with a shotgun. The question is to decide whether either or both of the defendants also plotted to help. This is not a trial of Raoul Moat. It is the trial of Kurama Wan and Carl Nez. Both defendants appeared unsteady on their feet when the verdicts were read aloud. The cry of yes rang throughout the courtroom. PC David Rathband and his family embraced. Chris Brown's mother could barely hold back the tears. Both of the defendants were found guilty of robbery and conspiracy to murder and the attempted murder of PC David Rathband. Nez was also convicted of possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life and the murder of Chris Brown. They would each receive a life sentence. A few days later, the pair would learn how long they had to spend behind bars for their crimes. Kurama One was handed a minimum term of 20 years and Carl Nez received double that and would have to spend the next 40 years behind bars. An extract from Mr Justice McCombs ruling read, Here we have a case where three men formulated a plan to murder policemen indiscriminately and then pursuant to that plan attempted to within the thinnest thread of human life to kill one officer with appalling consequences. The judge went on to say, While the offences may not have been committed without moat, it is difficult to see that they could have been committed in the manner that they were without Nez and Awan respectively. This too can be said to be a crime meriting punishment of the utmost severity, even though these defendants did not fire the gun. Each defendant willingly joined in a plan to commit random murders of police officers knowing precisely what Moat had already done to Mr. Brown and Miss Stobart. The plan resulted in an offence that nearly achieved that aim. Outside the court, PC David Rathband spoke about the verdict handed down to Carl Nez and Kuramawan. They will now both go to prison as convicted criminals and both liars. And I'm extremely pleased with that. I have a lifetime to live and they have a lifetime to reflect. I'm sure I'm a better place than them. 
While the officer was pleased with the outcome, he was left highly distressed on his way to court when using her fingers, a member of the public, Kelsey Donkin, made a gun gesture and shouted, bang, bang. Duncan had coincidentally been at the court for a separate case. Several police officers who just so happened to be nearby wrestled Duncan to the ground, placing her in handcuffs. She was arrested for a public order offence and after pleading guilty, avoided a custodial sentence. She was required to carry out community service and pay costs which would be recovered through her benefit payments. Donkin, a mother of three, sent an apology letter to PC Rathband and reportedly admitted that she did it to show off to her friends. After Carl Nair's in Kurama One's trial, Chris Brown's mother spoke with a reporter for the BBC. Sally Brown voiced her frustration that all the coverage on the case seemed to focus on Raoul Moat. In the papers, it's him, she said. They are always showing him. What about my Christopher? It's as if Christopher has been pushed under the carpet. No one wants to know anything about Christopher because there was nothing sordid or nasty. He was just an everyday lad. Carl Nez and Kurama Wan would not be the only people to face a prison sentence for assisting Raoul Moat to commit his crimes. Scott Raisbeck lent Carl Nez a Ford Transit van, which was used to transport Raoul Moat to Burtley where he carried out the first shooting. The van was in fact stolen, and when Nez returned it, Raisbeck hid some evidence that had been left behind. This included two shotgun cartridges and a computer that was used to search the internet for details on Chris Brown, Samantha Stobart's partner. It was accepted that Scott Raisbeck did not know the vehicle was going to be used in a murder. However, he removed critical evidence and lied to police when they asked if he used a white Ford Transit van or knew Carl Nez. During June 2011, he pleaded guilty to a charge of perverting the course of justice and handling stolen goods. Raisbeck was sentenced to 15 months in prison. From Newcastle Crown Court, Mr Justice Coulson told Raisbeck that there is a civic duty upon everyone to help bring criminals to justice and that is particularly acute when innocent people have been killed and maimed. You decided that rather than tell the police about what you knew, you admitted to lie and deceive them. On September 5th, 2011, an inquest began at Newcastle Crown Court into the death of Raoul Moat. Coroner David Mitford told the inquest jury that the proceedings were needed because Moat met his death when he was effectively detained. He told the 11 jurors that they had a difficult task ahead of them to forget a good deal of press the events had received. Quote, 
The publicity was so great it would be impossible for anybody not to know what happened to some extent in the summer of last year. You will recall there was a very substantial number of police officers involved, not just from Northumbria, but others included many, many forces and one of those was West Yorkshire Police. It will not have escaped your attention that there were some weapons called tasers used on the night in question. Those tasers were supplied to Northumbria Police by a firm called ProTech Limited. The barristers for Ralmote's family, the chief of Northumbria Police and ProTech Limited who supplied the model of taser deployed, would be asking questions of each witness. The details of the incident were accounted along with the findings after Ral Moat took his own life. Angus Moat, Ral's estranged half-brother, who had not seen him in seven years, voiced his disappointment that he was not allowed to see Moat during the standoff, believing that if they could have spoken, it might have resulted in a different outcome. Angus Moat said, My mum had been to the press that week and had been on the front pages saying Raoul would be better off dead. I completely disagreed with that. Raoul thought everybody in his own family would be against him and I wanted to show him that was not the case. I thought if I could speak to him it could change the way he was feeling and the way he would act. My view was that going to prison for the rest of his life would be better than death. Information about Moat was offered from barrister Andrew Straw, representing Moat's family. Straw told the inquest that during Moat's adult life, he had been plagued by nightmares, in which he was back to being a young child, endlessly pursued by monsters. Moat had referred to himself in his writing and verbal outbursts as a monster, a wild animal, the Incredible Hulk and King Kong. He likened the violence he perpetrated to playing a computer game. A forensic psychologist was asked to produce a psychological assessment on Moat. Using the material gathered throughout the investigation, which included the dictaphone recordings, letters and calls to the police, John Hughes said that Moat was, quote, using analogies that make sense to him. He feels like there is a huge, terrible, angry person in there. I did not interpret it to mean in a bigger picture there was any mental illness at this point. If you look at his behaviour as a whole, there is not the sort of chaotic disorder and failure to plan there would be if he was mentally ill. The most senior Northumbria police officer in charge during the manhunt for Raoul Moat Assistant Chief Constable Steve Ashman offered evidence. He said that tasers were used on Moat moments before he killed himself. The Assistant Chief Constable accepted the responsibility was ultimately his. Ashman said, We had reached the stage where there did not appear to be many alternatives. The option of using a taser came up on the day that Moat threatened to kill a member of the public, each time what Moat saw as an inaccuracy about him was published in the newspapers. 
a standard taser could not be used as it did not have the required range. However, an experimental weapon from Protec Limited, an X-12, which looks similar to a shotgun, and experimental ammunition, akin to bullet-like capsules fired from a standard 12-gauge shotgun, could theoretically hit their target from a further distance. The officers at the scene had never fired this type of taser before, and only had a few minutes in which to learn how to use it. Also, it had not been authorised by the Home Office. Two weapons were discharged. Witness accounts suggest Moat was hit by one projectile on the left arm, although was not incapacitated. He then ended his life with the shotgun. Assistant Chief Constable Steve Ashman explained that, quote, An opportunity had been presented to me, one I had not thought of but one which I was duty-bound to examine, because it gave us possibly the only chance, possibly one chance and one chance only, a single chance to apprehend him without using lethal force, without shooting and killing him. Half a dozen letters were found at Ralmote's home, addressed to his former girlfriend, friends and social services. Along with the correspondence, the police found items from which Moat had created homemade bullets. Officers also discovered what was described as a homemade noose attached to a loft hatch. A portion of one of the letters to social services read, Police find a good home for my children. There are people out there who can give them better care than I can. According to Superintendent Jim Napier from the Northumbria Police, the letters and other items suggested that Moat intended to take his own life. In one letter addressed to Samantha Stobart, Moat wrote, I don't know what to say except I love you. Always have, always will. I can't go on without you. Knowing you hate me is tearing me apart. I don't really understand much of what has been going on lately. You are the love of my life. I just can't go on without you. I know I can't live without you. I know we were so much in love. Conversations the former couple had over the phone while Moat was in prison had also been recorded. These were played to the inquest jury and included the breakdown of Moat's relationship and Samantha Stobart's comments about Chris Brown. Moat told Samantha, You are the only person I have ever cared about. I can't have you out of my life. I'm going to go crazy, man. She responded, To be honest, Ral, he's a handy fucking bloke and he is a lot younger than you. Moat pleaded for the couple to stay together. Superintendent Napier believed that the breakup was the catalyst for Moat's actions. When it was clear he was not going to win back the mother of one of his children, Moat chose to kill her new boyfriend and maim her. After the shooting, Moat told his friend Carl Nez, I've shot Sam. I've shot Sam. 
I'm full of beans. I feel a huge cloud has been lifted off my shoulders. Transcripts of Moat's call to the police before he shot PC David Rathband were also provided. At one point, Moat told the operator, I'm hunting for officers right now. The operator's words of, Please don't do that. We don't want any more killings, were ignored. Recordings on a dictaphone found among most things in Rothbury mentioned the attack on PC Rathband. I'm not too fussed about not killing him, Moat said. I was going to go along and finish him. He got two shots, that's enough. And at the end of the day, he is looking a bit of a mess. Moat added, I have come out and got my vengeance. I have set Sam up for life, financially at least. But it's not really what I want. It would be a waste of a life and a waste of the taxpayer's money. Just take the shootout and everybody's happy. More questions were asked regarding the possibility of Moat involuntarily pulling the trigger on the shotgun when he was struck by the taser. It was confirmed that there was no evidence an electrical discharge occurred. A pathologist who carried out a second post-mortem at the request of Moat's family offered evidence of the finding. Dr Nigel Cooper said, The cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. The entry wound was 35mm above the right ear and 30mm in front of it. It had some features to indicate it had been fired at a very close range. The pathologist expanded on Moat's physical state, considering a pulse was temporarily discovered only moments after he pulled the trigger. In Mr Moat's case, it had travelled through the central part of the brain, which means from that moment it was fired, he would have been unaware of anything. After Superintendent Jim Napier had presented some of the evidence Northumbria Police had gathered, he was asked about the outcome when Raoul Moat took his own life. Napier said how disappointed he was that Moat was not alive to face up to the crimes he had committed. As the inquest drew to a close, an IPCC report into the events found that there was no evidence of misconduct by the officers for the Northumbria Police Force. Their actions were reasonable and proportionate. Nothing the Independent Police Complaints Commission could find pointed to the use of the taser causing Moat's death. The only feedback the IPCC provided was better equipment should have been used to record Moat's final moments, rather than the handheld cameras that were utilised. On September 27, 2011, the inquest jury came to a decision. Before they reached a verdict, in his summation of the case, the coroner had told the court, there are only two possible verdicts I think you can come to. 
the jury would have to be satisfied if they decided on suicide, or if an open verdict was their decision. It could be reached on the balance of probabilities. When making their decision, the judge requested the jury consider the following. 1. Did the firing of the taser cause Moat to shoot himself when he otherwise would not have done so? 2. Were the instructions to firearms officers appropriate? 3. Was it right to fire the tasers? 4. Was the decision not to use Moat's half-brother Angus or his friend Anthony Wright in direct negotiation appropriate? And 5. Was a senior officer's decision to use tasers appropriate? After a three-week inquest and five hours of deliberation, the jury ruled that Raoul Moat took his own life. Moat's family expressed their disappointment with the actions taken by Northumbria police, as no one from the family was allowed to speak to Moat during the standoff. They also felt that using a weapon that had not been authorised by the Home Office was a mistake. Addressing those points, Sue Sim, who had since become the Chief Constable of Northumbria Police, said, The situation was extremely volatile and dangerous, and the assessment of trained expert negotiators was that it would have been unsafe to introduce anyone into the negotiation with Moat who had not seen him for some time or who may have inflamed the situation. Defending the decisions made by Northumbria police, Sim stated, Raoul Moat chose his path and decided to murder, attempt to murder and to threaten the lives of the public and police officers. He had many opportunities to hand himself in and face justice, yet he chose not to do so. His victims had no such choice. One of Raoul Moat's victims, who many believed had been all but forgotten in the media frenzy that surrounded Moat's actions in those early morning hours, was Chris Brown. An inquest into his death was eventually held during December 2013, almost three and a half years after he lost his life. From Court 1 at Newcastle Crown Court, overseen by Coroner Terence Carney, a throng of reporters watched on. Clearly visible was Sally Brown, Chris's mother. This had been the place where she had watched Carl Nairs and Kuramawan receive a total of 60 years for their part in assisting Raoul Moat to commit his crimes. She would describe what it was like losing her son. It has been horrendous for the whole family. I cannot think of anything worse than burying your own child. I can only think of one word to describe it. Hell. Remembering the sort of person Chris Brown was, his mother honestly remarked. His friends said he was like Marmite. You either loved him or you hated him. But if you loved him, you had a friend for life. He was very loyal, happy-go-lucky, and never sat still. As soon as he tried karate, he said he loved it and was good at it. 
He enjoyed teaching it, and especially teaching children. Over the years, the security information report produced by the officers at Durham Prison, which indicated that Moat intended to severely assault his partner Samantha Stobart, had continually been mentioned in the press, though only now the full details of its relevance were revealed. Information came from a fellow inmate at HMP Durham, who claimed that Moat indicated that he was going to take some form of revenge against Samantha and her partner. However, when the document was examined, a box in the form Action Immediately was not marked. The form was passed between a number of teams before it was processed. The coroner asked Martin Phillips, the prison officer who completed the form, about his understanding of the action immediately section. He said that he did not know what it meant. While the coroner ruled that there were failures by the Northumbria police, he did not believe those failures led to Chris Brown's death. Coroner Terence Carney said, My finding is that Christopher Brown was unlawfully killed by Raoul Moat, but the precise risk he presented was not known. I am not satisfied that the information we have heard and was available was used appropriately, but I'm not satisfied that a failure to use this information has directly caused Christopher Brown's death or contributed to it. Addressing the comments made by Sally Brown, Coroner Terence Carney went on to say, In her statement to this inquest, the mother of Chris Brown challenged us to remember him, saying that much has been said and written about Raoul Moat and that we should quite properly focus on her son. It cannot be denied to her that much has been made in legal proceedings to date about those responsible for her son's death and the search for and death of Raoul Moat. She may well be forgiven that in the accumulation of newsprint that has been expended on this matter to date, Christopher the victim has been forgotten. Carl Nez, one of Raoul Moat's accomplices, appealed his sentence at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Counsel for Nez argued that the minimum sentence of 40 years set by Mr Justice McCombe was exceptional. The three appeal court judges, Chief Justice Lord Judge, Mr Justice Sweeney and Mr Justice Singh reviewed the arguments put forward. In the judgment, Lord Judge said, It clearly is exceptional, and we recognise that. The reality is that this was a case of exceptionally grave crime. The judges concluded that, quote, There is nothing about this sentence, and in particular the minimum term assessed by the judge, with which it is even arguable that this court should interfere.
so where are we now? The incident which saw Ralmo turn the life of not only himself but Chris Brown, blinded PC David Rathband and almost killed Samantha Stobart, had far-reaching consequences. Shortly after Moat took his life, Chris Brown's father Jeffrey told the press, As we mourn our son and brother, we are aware that the cowardly act of Moat will affect others, including Moat's family who will have to live with his actions for the rest of their lives. This statement could not have been more accurate. The repercussions of the shooting would have fatal consequences not only for those directly affected, but for the individuals who orbited the case. Before Ralmote took his life, armed police fired two unlicensed tasers in an attempt to incapacitate him. Only one found its target, although it was a glancing blow which had no effect, allowing Moat to pull the trigger on a shotgun that was pointing to his head. The two experimental tasers, the X-12, supplied by Protec Limited, should not have been provided directly to the police force. Instead, they should have gone to the Home Office Science and Development branch. The tasers were still being tested and were not yet approved. Protec had breached the terms of their license. The knock-on effect meant the company could no longer import and sell tasers after their license was revoked by the then Home Secretary Theresa May at the end of September 2010. Only a few days later, Peter Boatman, the Director of Operations at Protec, was found dead. It was reported in the press at the time that he had taken his own life, with carbon monoxide inhalation a possible cause. However, an inquest the following year would record an open verdict. Kevin Coles, a friend and business partner to Boatman, who was the managing director of Protec, would speak to reporters about what had happened. Describing Peter Boatman, Coles stated, He was a proud man and he felt ashamed at recent developments. He spent all his life involved in officer safety, and what happened was a result of him being worried about the welfare of officers. He knew there was something there that would offer the officers protection, and that was what his motive was. The furore over it destroyed him. It was eventually decided that it was not in the public interest to take any legal action against Protec for the breach, and the investigation was closed. Following the shooting in East Denton, PC David Rathband set out to achieve a great deal. He bore no malice towards the man that caused his injuries. Before the incident, he worked as a police constable, serving as a traffic officer despite the fact that he had passed the sergeant exam and trained as a family liaison officer. He loved his job. After the shooting, Rathband ran more than 26 miles in the London Marathon, raising funds for the charity he set up. 
the Blue Lamp Foundation continues to help members of the emergency services that have been injured in the course of duty. David Rathband was an advocate and a campaigner. In 2010, he won the Pride of Britain Award in the Emergency Services category. He was labelled a national hero in the press. David also wrote a book called Tango 190, in which he documented his personal experience of the events that unfolded in Northumberland and journaled how he sought to rebuild his life afterwards. While he accomplished much, it was clear that he was struggling with the challenges in his life. The incident left him in a great deal of pain as some of the shrapnel still remained in his wounds and he would undergo several surgeries to remove it. Towards the end of February 2012, David posted a number of concerning messages on Twitter in which he mentioned the loss of his eyesight, the breakdown of his marriage and his job. He then posted a further update which read, R.I.P. P.C. Rathband. On the evening of February 29th, 2012, police were called to his home, gaining access by breaking in through the back patio door. David did not leave a note. However, he reportedly sent a communication to a relative. He had hung himself. At an inquest, his family said that while they were devastated, they found comfort in the fact that at least David was at peace. Darren Rathband spoke fondly of his twin brother. He said, David didn't want to be a burden on anyone. Everything he set his mind to, he accomplished. Years earlier, Darren told a reporter for the BBC how he saw his twin. Most children grow up looking for a hero. Superman, Spider-Man, whatever. I didn't realise I grew up with mine and that to me is second to none. I can grow up knowing my hero is right next to me. Following the news of David Rathband's death, a statement was posted on the Blue Lamp Foundation website. It read in part, It was David's wish that those who found themselves in a similar position to him could receive the support that wasn't available to him at the time. Almost four years after his death, David Rathband's family would be taking Northumbria police to court. The civil claim was in fact started by PC Rathband before his death and was being continued by his family. It was alleged that the force was negligent for not warning the officer of Raoul Moat's threats. While he had read a report on the shooting in Burtley, the officer was not aware of Moat's intentions. There was an eight-minute gap between the 999 phone call ending and Moat pulling the trigger. In his comprehensive judgment, which stands at 39 pages long, Mr Justice Males ruled that Northumbria Police Force were not negligent. Quote, This is an immensely sad case, 
but for the reasons given in this judgment, I conclude that this claim must fail. It is well-established law that in making operational decisions concerning the investigation and suppression of crime, particularly when such decisions have to be made under the pressure of time, the police do not owe a private law duty of care either to members of the public or to police officers. This is a rule of public policy which, even if it results in hardship in individual cases, has been held to be in the public interest as contributing to the overall effectiveness of policing in this country. In his conclusion, Mr Justice Males referred to P.C. Rathban's book Tango 190, in which the officer wrote, I have to believe that I took one for my colleagues. In response, the judge said, Regardless of the issue of any warning to be vigilant, P.C. Rathban's bleak assessment was probably right. He was desperately unlucky to be the victim of Moat's cruelty and hatred, but if it had not been him, it would probably have been somebody else. A year before his death, PC David Rathband was interviewed for the Victoria Derbyshire show on BBC Radio 5 Live. Rathband spoke about what he saw after he fell asleep and the trial of Carl Nares and Kurama 1. Moat used to visit me in my dreams. On the night they were sentenced, Raoul Moat visited me for a couple of seconds. Normally I would speak to him for a couple of seconds to get him to go away, but this time he appeared and I just laughed in his face and he went away. He can't get to me now. He had done what he tried to do and he failed. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer Simon Dovey and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.